This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. I'd like to thank everyone for coming out uh, to, on a snowy Chicago night. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, I think it'll be a great time. Uh, my name is Isaac Freilich Jones, and I'm the president of Chicago Society, the University of Chicago student-run lecture series. Um, I just want to tell you, I want to thank a couple of people for helping put this together. First, I want to thank our partners, the International House, as well as International House Global Voices series, and the partners in that effort, uh, the Center for International Studies and the Seminary Co-op Bookstores. I'd also like to thank Tom Zimmerman of Fermilab for helping us put this together. Um, and uh, everyone was uh, did an incredible job. Um, we have a couple of upcoming events that you may be interested in on January 22nd, next Tuesday at 7 p.m., James Heckman, the 2000 Nobel Laureate in Economics, and Professor Alan Sanderson the University of Chicago will be doing, giving a lecture exploring the issue of inequality in the United States today. Um, International House also has an event coming up on January 23rd. Sergio Aguayo will be speaking on human rights in Mexico inside the labyrinth of drugs, elections, and billionaires. He's one of Mexico's leading public intellectuals and human rights advocates. I'd now like to present to you Dr. Michael Shermer, somehow in between biking across country and writing a monthly column for Scientific American. He's managed to put together a great book called The Mind of the Market, exploring the intersection between the social sciences and evolution. And it is my incredible honor right now to present to you Dr. Michael Shermer. So this is the uh, start of the second week of my four-week book tour, so uh, I'm, I'm glad to, to, to have a good audience here, and uh, it's, it's really rough. Uh, you end up sort of self-medicating as you go across uh, a different city every, every day. Two days ago, I was with Christopher Hitchens at his house, so there was a lot of self-medication <laughs> going on there as I was introduced to the world of single malt scotch whiskeys, and uh, a good time was had by all. Anyway, um, uh, you know how it is like when you sleep in a different bed every night and you get that like kink in your neck and stuff and you know we do stuff on chiropractic at Skeptic Magazine and I don't know sometimes it works if you listen carefully I'll try to oh, there okay much better <laughs> you can ask about that in the Q&A if you want <laughs> I did that at a medical conference once, and there were some neurologists in the front row that about fainted. <laughs> oh my God, you could actually, it's, I didn't actually crack my neck. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, I'm the publisher of this Skeptic Magazine. It's the quarterly publication of the Skeptic Society. We investigate claims of the paranormal, pseudoscience, fringe groups, and cults, and claims of all kinds between science and good science, junk science, bad science, pathological science, voodoo science, non-science, and plain old nonsense. And unless you've been abducted by aliens and been on Mars, for the last couple decades, you know, there's a lot of it out there. Nonsense, that is. And uh, that's our job. We debunk nonsense. We investigate and uh, try to provide a uh, natural explanation for apparently supernatural phenomenon. Uh, we try to uh, look into claims like, well, this cover of Skeptic on 9-11 conspiracy theories. Was 9-11 a conspiracy? Well, yeah, actually it was. <laughs> 19 Al-Qaeda members, that constitutes a conspiracy. But the so-called 9-11 truthers actually think it was, you know, something else going on. That it was the Bush administration that orchestrated uh, the collapse of the World Trade Center buildings by carefully planting thousands of bombs inside the two World Trade Center buildings, remotely controlling flying planes into the buildings at just the point where the bombs were planted, where it would collapse from the top down, and, and so on and so on. This, the same people, by the way, who think that Bush is the most incompetent president we've ever had in the history of the Union. And yet he somehow managed to pull off the most intelligent, incredibly complex conspiracy in the history of civilization. <laughs> This alone tells us something, how to think critically about claims like this. You know what happens with government uh, bureaucrats and politicians who leave the administration. They write books, they write articles, they go on Larry King Live to tell uh, everything that they know and saw and witnessed about this and that and every little secret they can think of. Not one person has come forward with the inside story behind what really happened in 9-11. 
in long, along the lines of what the 9-11 truthers think. So that's the kind of thing we look at, not only what the claims are, but why somebody would believe those kinds of claims. It has to do with the psychology of belief and the power of belief. What happens normally is that we commit ourselves to a particular position and then we apply the confirmation bias after the fact and find confirmatory evidence where we've decided we want to believe and then just simply ignore the disconfirmatory evidence. So that's a nice example uh, of that. Our current issue on the newsstands now, you can pick up skeptic at uh, any Barnes & Noble or Borders. By the way, I'm passing around a clipboard there. If you put your email address, you can get a free, you'll get the free uh, weekly electronic skeptic, the e-skeptic, e the electronic version of skeptic uh, magazine. And when you, when you actually join the society, you get the subscription of the magazine, you get the decoder ring. Uh, we tell you, you know, what the da, da Vinci code actually means. Um, you know, and all the, all the, all the ends, who, who's a, a member of the, the New World Order and the Bilderbergers and the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds and the Illuminati and so forth, all the good stuff. So uh, as a spinoff for my work on in Skeptic, I write books. So uh, Why People Believe Weird Things was about science and pseudoscience and how we believe was about science and religion and why people believe in God. Uh, and that led naturally to my third book, uh, The Science of Good and Evil on Science and Morality. And then, so I guess the mind of the market is uh, volume four of my trilogy, uh, Pace, uh, Douglas Adams, uh, expanding science into the realm of or evolutionary theory, into the realm of economics and, and social forces. So uh, this is supposed to be a reading, so I thought I'd do a little bit of reading and then some talking and telling stories, and, and then we'll do some uh, Q&A afterwards. Um, so I'm fond of telling my atheist friends the second word in my book is Jesus. <laughs> this kind of throws them off. Uh, in Jesus' parable of the talents, recounted in Matthew 25, the gospel author recalls the Messiah as saying in the final verse, For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. This is the favorite passage in the Gospels for conservatives. You see, Jesus was a conservative, not a liberal. Of course, they overlooked the stuff about, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, and the chances of a rich guy getting into heaven are those of a rope being passed through the eye of a, of a needle. It's not camel. It's one of those great mistranslations. Rope through an eye of a needle makes much more sense. Um, and, uh, but anyway, this is in the, uh, the famous uh, Sermon on the Mount. This is the parable of the talents, the talents being the form of money. The servant who was given five talents invested it and gave his master ten talents in return. The servant who was given two talents invested it and gave his master four talents. But the servant who was given one talent buried it in the ground and gave his master back just the one talent. The master then ordered his risk-averse servant to give the one talent to the servant who had doubled his investment to five. And so he who earned the most was rewarded even more. And thus it is that the rich get richer. Now, Jesus probably had something in mind more than an economic allegory about selecting the right investment vehicle for your money. But I want to employ the story as a parable about the mind of the market. In the 1960s, the sociologist of science, Robert K. Merton, conducted an extensive study of how scientific ideas are discovered and credited in the marketplace of ideas, in this case, treating science as a market and found that eminent scientists typically receive more credit than they deserve simply by dint of having a big name. While their junior college and graduate students, who usually do most of the work, as we know, uh, go largely unnoticed. A similar well-known effect can be seen in how both innovative ideas and clever quotes gravitate up and are given credit to the most famous person associated with them. In my world, in the world of skepticism, our most famous quote is, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You usually spout it out when somebody talks about Bigfoot and aliens and things like that. Usually it's prefaced with, as Carl Sagan always said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. In fact, the, 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 the little quote came from an obscure sociologist of science named Marcello Truzzi who wrote it in an obscure little journal that Carl read and then said it on Cosmos and you know, documentary TV show, you don't have to give credit for everything. And so forevermore it gravitated up to the most famous guy who ever said it. Merton called this the Matthew effect, marketers know it as cumulative advantage. In a broader economic context, I shall refer to it here as the bestseller effect. Once a product gets a head start in sales, it signals to consumers that other people want that product and therefore it must be good, thereby causing them to desire it as well, which leads even more people to purchase the product, sending more signals to other consumers that they too must have it and so up it climbs the bestseller list. 
this is why authors go on book tours, by the way, <laughs> is to try to get some cumulative advantage, to get a little Matthew effect going. You walk into the bookstore there, Barnes & Noble Borders, you'll see that little new arrival table, and the books that are on that table uh, are purchased. The space is purchased by publishers. They're not there by accident. Just like when you walk into the supermarket, the Pepsi and Coca-Cola, you pay for those spots there. Anyway, everybody in the business knows that's how it works. Of course, the whole point is to get you on some of the bestseller lists, which sends more signals to consumers, and they order more books, and so you get a snowballing effect, right? To quantify the bestseller effect, the Columbia University sociologist Duncan Watson and his colleagues uh, tested it in a web-based experiment in which 14,000 participants registered at a website where they had the opportunity to listen to, rate, and download songs by unknown bands. One group of registrants were only given the names of the songs and bands, while a second group of registrants were also shown how many times a song had been downloaded. So they rigged it first to show some downloading more than others, and then that got the Matthew effect going, and pretty soon those songs were the most popular ones. So nothing particularly surprising there, other than it's a nice example of, of the market having a mind of its own. It requires no top-down designer. It's just a bottom-up, self-organized, emergent property. A larger example of that is the entire history of, of the economy over the last 10,000 years. That itself is an example of the mind of the market. So I'll turn now to the uh, first chapter called The Great Leap Forward. Living along the Orinoco River that borders Brazil and Venezuela are the Yanomamo people, hunter-gatherers whose average annual income has been estimated at the equivalent of about $100 per person per year. If you walked into a Yanomamo village and counted up the stone tools, baskets, arrow points, arrow shafts, bows, cotton yarn, cotton and vine hammocks, clay pots, assorted other tools, various medicinal remedies, pets, food products, articles of clothing, and the like, you'd end up with a figure of around 300. Before 10,000 years ago, this was the approximate material wealth of every village on the planet. If our species is about 100,000 years old, then 90% of our history has been spent in this state of relative economic simplicity. For the 100,000 figure, I'm just taking the lower boundary of the estimated between 100 and 160,000 years ago of the last bottleneck migration out of Africa. Living along the Hudson River that borders New York and New Jersey are the Manhattan people. <laughs> Consumer traders whose average annual income has been estimated at $40,000 per person per year. If you walked into the Manhattan Village and counted up all the different products available at retail stores and restaurants, factory outlets, and superstores, you'd end up with a figure of around 10 billion, as measured by stockkeeping units, SKUs, the barcodes. The barcode has now just been bumped up to 100 billion because we ran out of the 10 billion different products. This difference of 400 times in income and 33 million times in pr uh, products almost beggars description. If ever there was a great leap forward, this was it. Comparable to the evolution of bipedalism, the big brain and consciousness, equivalent to the invention of fire, the printing press, and the internet, and on par with the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, and the digital revolution. And the great leap forward did not happen gradually. It has been estimated that the $100 per person annual income has risen only to about $150 per person by 1000 BC, the end of the Bronze Age and the time of King David and did not exceed $200 per person per annum until after 1750 and the onset of the Industrial Revolution. In other words, it took 97,000 years to go from 100 to $150 a head per year, then another 2,750 years to climb to $200 per person per year, and finally, 250 years to descend to today's level of $6,600 per person per year for the entire world, and, as we just saw, an order of magnitude higher still for the richest people in the wealthiest nations. If we compress that 100,000-year period into just one year, then the last 250-year period of relative prosperity would represent less than one day out of the year. Or if we condense the 100 millennium into a 24-hour day, our epoch of industrial production and market economies accounts for a mere 3.6 minutes. In other words, the age in which we live and take for granted is normal, and the way things have always been, in fact, constitutes a mere one-quarter of 1% 1 of the history of humanity. So the question is, how in the world did this happen? This is a weird thing. This is a hard problem. Uh, cognitive psychologists call consciousness the hard problem. So I call this the really hard problem. Uh, and so, uh, and really the, the, um, the, the parallels there are close because I'm, I'm treating 
the economy as a complex adaptive system, and we simply have to apply what we know from complexity theory to try to explain that. And in that sense, then, we are already familiar with complex adaptive systems that emerge and self-organize at a bottom-up. Simpler systems. Life itself appears to be a, a bottom-up, self-organized emergent property of just chemicals in a prebiotic soup in which you just put energy into the system. Complex life appears to be uh, a conglomeration of bottom-up, self-organized emergent property of simpler life. The eukaryotic cells that we're made out of that have all those little organelles inside them, uh, well, I think um, Lynn Margulis's theory about how this happened, that is, those little organelles were once themselves simpler prokaryotic cells that self-organized into these more complex cells. It helps explain, if you think about it for just a second, why we would have mitochondrial DNA. Everybody's heard of mitochondrial DNA. It's how you trace your ancestry through your mother's line. Why would mitochondria have, why would there be a second set of DNA in our cells? That's such a weird thing for an intelligent designer to do. How strange. <laughs> well, that's a subject of my previous book on intelligent design theory and evolution. But it is, it is a serious problem, unless you look at it in the context of a bottom-up organized, self-organized system. Multicellular life appears to be the same thing. And the immune system is a self-organized emergent property. Billions of our cells working together to combat bacteria and viruses. Consciousness, probably, most likely will be explained by uh, a um, emergent property of 100 billion neurons firing in different sequences and patterns. Language is a self-organized emergent property. We're already familiar with that. Nobody designed English 500 years ago to sound anything like it does today. Uh, certainly not like where I'm from in Southern California where they were, use the word like every three words. You, you couldn't design that, not, certainly not intelligently. The law, the law is a self-organized emergent property, and of course the economy is. So in, on one level, I'm doing a little bridge building here, trying to convince my conservative friends who like free market economics but are untrusting of evolutionary theory that, in fact, evolution is just like the economy thing you already know about and you don't like top-down design in the economy. Well, evolution is the same thing. I'm trying to convince my liberal friends who are distrusting of free market economics that, hey, that stuff about evolution you fully accept, it's the same kind of thing, not a perfect parallel with the same kind of thing there. So there I transition then into the second chapter called Folk Economics. Why is it so many people don't accept evolutionary theory or uh, free market economics? And the reason is in part the same. That is, uh, they're counterintuitive. We evolved in what Richard Dawkins calls a middle world, or what I prefer slightly, middle land for its literative purposes. In middle land, in this, the plains of Africa and our Paleolithic ancestry, everything was sort of of a middling size and a middling speed, somewhere between, say, ants and mountain ranges, and everything, gazelles and elephants and tapers and so on, are all sort of a middle size. We can see them really well. And, and they kind of move along at a medium, middling pace. They run or walk. You can see them just fine. And, uh, and, and time-wise, you know, we live a scant few decades and are somewhere between now, which psychologically lasts about three seconds, and our lifetime of several decades. That's the time frame we're used to. So things that are smaller than ants, say molecules, atoms, subatomic particles, these are completely counterintuitive for us to understand. Therefore, you need uh, analogs and metaphors and, and models to try to help grasp it. The atom with its electrons going around the nucleus is like a solar system. Well, no, actually it's not. But, you know, it's Close enough to help us at least try to understand it if you're in grammar school or something like this, right? Because it's counterintuitive. Or on the a larger scale of uh, stars and planets and galaxies and expanding bubble universes and multiple universes. And uh, there's nothing in our, there's nothing in middle land to help us sort of intuitively grasp that instantly. And same thing with the length of time. I mean, when we talk about cl global climate change, uh, over the next 1,000 years or 10,000 years, uh, you'll hear things like global warming. What are you talking about? I mean, you know, it was cold yesterday. And you wonder, well, geez, didn't you take a science class? Well, actually, you need a science class because intuitively we think anecdotally. That is, we are association learners. We associate A with B, and often A really is connected to B causally, and that's called learning. Unfortunately, we don't have a baloney detection module in our brain to help us sort out the false positives, and that's why we have places like Las Vegas that succeed so well. <laughs> and of course, in Middle Land, in the Paleolithic environments in which we lived, uh, these societies were mostly egalitarian. There wasn't that much uh, wealth accumulation, and if there was, it was probably not gotten through fair free trade means. Um, and certainly there was no invisible hand for it because there was no economy. And the whole idea of our 
sort of notion of let markets sort of move along and people do what they want. All this will, will just work it, sort itself out. This is counterintuitive. So people don't trust it any more than they trust evolution because you can't see it. It takes time uh, over a long period of time. So you need metaphors. The two greatest metaphors in the history of Western thought, I, I claim, are the invisible hand and natural selection. And even those are a little misleading. Natural selection, Darwin opens the origin of species with a story about pigeon breeders. Uh, and of course, a creationist can jump all over that and say, yeah, well, of course, look, it's a pigeon breeder. There's a breeder directing the selection process, just like yeah, intelligent design, right? So it's a slightly misleading notion, but Darwin's just grasping for something because it's such a nebulous, counterintuitive uh, uh, concept that you can't really see because it, it takes place at a level we're not uh, familiar with and over a long period of time that we're not accustomed to, right? So. And nobody's selecting anything. I mean, I often, I used to make, when I taught a course in this, think of polar bears are like a living transitional species, you know, becoming a, a marine mammal. Look, they're halfway there, got all this body fat and these huge paws and the webbing and they can swim really well and they can swim a long time. And, but, but that's really not right. Uh, polar bears aren't on the way to becoming anything except maybe extinct if global warming continues, maybe. Um, it, they're not heading anywhere. Evolution's not directional. And, and what Smith was after with the invisible hand is something similar to that, although he comes before Darwin. It's that uh, you can't see it takes place over a, uh, uh, over a large system or over a long period of time, but that there is something like an invisible hand at work that leads to this self-organized emergent uh, property. So, um, and to that extent, then, uh, I move and start talking about some of the, the myths of Adam Smith and that, uh, in fact, Smith was a professor of moral philosophy at Edinburgh University, and so even though he's famous for being Mr. Free Market Economics, in fact, there were no departments of economics because there was no such thing as economics, something like political economy would be the closest thing, but he wasn't even that. He was a professor of moral philosophy, and his first book was called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And Smith said, in order to have a civil society and a market economy and, and, and so forth, you need, you need to have a system in which people actually can empathize and sympathize with one another. They, they have a sense of what somebody else is, is thinking. This today we would call a theory of mind, that uh, I'm aware, and I'm aware that I'm, I'm even self-aware, and I'm aware that you're aware, and I'm aware that you're aware that I'm aware, and I know that you know that I know that you know, right? So there's this sort of common knowledge between people that helps us um, in a game theory model sort of sort out uh, how we play the game of life together without uh, maximizing conflict that is attenuating conflict. Uh, Steve Pinker uses this wonderful example from the film uh, Fargo. I remember Fargo where uh, Steve Biscumi uh, gets pulled over by the cop and they got the, the kidnapped woman in the back seat and he doesn't have a plate. He doesn't have the license plate on the back of his stolen car. So uh, he hands out his wallet with his, license, with his driver's license and a 50 just ever so slightly sticking out. And he says, I thought we could take care of this here in Brainerd. Now, he knows that the cop knows what that means, and he knows that the cop knows that he knows what that means, but it's, it's couched in a way that if he actually was in court, he could say, it must have just poked out a little bit. I wasn't offering him a bribe. He could still get out of the charge of bribery. So there is that sort of I know that you know that I know that you know kind of meta-meta uh, uh, levels of consciousness. And, and Smith actually got all that right without having any biology behind it. He just, from, from example and sort of intuiting it, and... Um, uh, so where I'm, I go from there then is to ask the, the evolutionist question, how, how could this happen? So not from an, an economist's point of view, since economists have already thought about this since, since the time of Smith, but I want to go at a deeper level. The evolutionist wants to know uh, the, sort of an ultimate level of why these things um, would happen. So then I began to think of um, what happens when people uh, trade. There has to be a certain level of trust. And Trust is an emotion. Now, why do you need the emotion of trust? Uh, well, because most of trading in the modern world is done by strangers who don't know one another. So from an evolutionary perspective, we can understand fully now why people who are related to one another are nice and cooperative and altruistic and pro-social, because that really is a good way to get your genes into the next generation. Uh, so this is kin selection. This was all worked out in the 60s and 70s by Bob Trivers and others. Uh, then, then expanding the circle of sentiments to, to those who are not related to one another, related to us, but, but we know them pretty well. 
Uh, and this is called reciprocal altruism. So if I'm living in a small community of a few dozen to a few hundred people, everybody knows one another, and we know each other for a long period of time. There's lots of time, for, lots of opportunities for interactions with one another, a kind of a trading system. In this case, trading social favors and things like this. There, there's lots of opportunity for uh, building of trust by doing things for one another, and that's reciprocal altruism. I'll scratch your back if you'll scratch mine. Of course, only works. Uh, if we have lots of opportunities to tell who is a, a reliable cooperator and who is an unreliable defector. So one of the roles of gossip in, in society is, well, what's the, what, what is gossip about? Well, we all know what it's about, but, but believe it or not, there are academics who have gotten grants to study gossip and, and actually sort of do a content analysis of it. And it's about other people and who's sleeping with who and who's honest and who's not and who has power and who doesn't and who has status and who's trustworthy and who's not. And, and, and all, so gossip is really just a form of information exchange uh, to gather more data about, uh, in a game theory, about who is more likely to cooperate in the game of life. Um, and, and so that, th then we go to, well, what about uh, interactions between unrelated, unknown people across different groups? Um, and so where I'm going with this is that, um, is when I'm building up sort of a case for uh, free trade here is that trade is one of the great lubricators of uh, of social interaction, social cooperation. That is, it it, it naturally breaks down it breaks down the natural barriers, the xenophobic tribalistic barriers that we that we harbor, of of not of naturally not trusting. The default uh, position is don't trust other people and other groups you don't know until uh, defect before until until they cooperate and then cooperate back. Um, and we do this through emotion. So um, I start off in one of my chapters talking about um, this now infamous uh, trolley car problem that most of you have probably heard about. But anyway, those of you who haven't, you're walking along a, uh, a railroad line and there's a, there's a train hurtling along the track and, and you're standing there at the switch and the train can go left or right. And down the one branch are five workers and down the other branch is, is one worker. And the train is, is scheduled to go off to the right track and kill the five workers. And you're standing there, you can throw the switch and it goes off to the left and kills the, the one worker. The, the moral calculation is you kill one to save five, would you do it? And uh, most people say that, yeah, they'd do that. They, that. That seems right, they would do that. And uh, you can do this, you can go to Mark Hauser's website at Harvard and take it and he has you know, hundreds of thousands of people have taken this now and he'll tell you how you did if you get the right, no, there's no right answer. Um, and then in the second scenario, uh, there's just a, a track with five workers on it and the train's coming down and you're standing on a bridge over the track uh, and next to you is a great big guy and uh, you have the option, you could shove him off the bridge and he lands on the track and splat, the train hits it and kills him and stops and saves the five workers. So would you throw the guy off the track? Now, usually, it's often when I give this scenario, I'm asked, well, well who is it? <laughs> it's Rush Limbaugh. Oh, in that case. <laughs> no. Um, so uh, most people say they wouldn't do it. They would not throw the guy off the track. And, and, and why not? And, and the reason is, is that switches and people are categorically different and evolutionary theory explains why. Evolution designed us to value humans over non-humans, kin over non-kin, friends over strangers, in-group members over out-group members, and direct action over indirect action because these differences impacted survival and reproduction. <clears throat> Uh, this research has now been done uh, with uh, uh, subjects in an fMRI MRI scanner uh, in which you actually look to see which parts of the brain are lighting up. So uh, what I'm doing in my book is integrating uh, four different sciences. Complexity theory, which we talked about, behavioral economics, which is that experiment is an example of that. Um, uh, neuroeconomics, which is you scan the brains of subjects that are doing those kinds of experiments, and then um, uh, and then uh, evolutionary economics, which is what I'm doing to wrap this all up. So in that third one, uh, basically you take all these different scenarios, a prisoner's dilemma and uh, the ultimatum game I'll talk about in a minute. And, and like for this one, you, you cram a subject inside one of these MRI tubes and you scan their brains while they're playing these games. Well, we've all read about these things in, in the popular literature, Scientific American and Discover and Newsweek and so on. It'll, a little picture of a brain and color, and there's a big bright red dot, and you know, look, there's the money module. And you know, they 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 sort of simplify things, really simplify things, because it doesn't look anything at all like that when you actually go and do these things. So I went to do one of these experiments uh, at UCLA just to see what this was like, and. Uh, and so you're crammed in there with this helmet on and these earphones because it's louder than hell and these goggles and 
inside the goggles are these little TV monitors that represent the computer screens out in the other room where they're running the experiment. You have this little keypad thing and they give you choices and you, you pick your choices or you make your offers or you make donations or whatever it is you're doing sort of economically. And they see which parts of the brain are lighting up. In this particular one, uh, it turns out that areas of the brain that are involved in moral computation, that is sort of a reasoning, rational, uh, prefrontal cortex, uh, higher order cortex thing, is, um, is, is most lit up when you're making the choice about whether to throw the switch or not. Uh, when you're asked to shove somebody off, it's a much sort of lower road, emotion, amygdala-based uh, system. In, in other words, it feels more sort of intuitively, uh, viscerally wrong whereas the throwing the switch is more like a rational calculation. This is how this data is interpreted. Uh, anyway, I couldn't stay inside the tube, just parenthetically. It turns out that about 20% of all subjects have claustrophobic and, uh, claustrophobia, and I had no idea I had it until I was already in there. <laughs> and uh, this is why they give you a panic button. So uh, this is the weirdest thing, and there's a little bit of artificiality to it. There are no brains. Uh, in those pictures, that is not anybody's brain you're looking at. That's a statistical conglomerate of the whole sample size compared to two different, under two different conditions, artificially colored, and so on and so on. So um, there may be some room for skepticism with some of that research. That, that may be a future column for Scientific American for me. Uh, but nevertheless, um, uh, this at least uh, as an approximation helps us kind of see which parts of the brain appear to be more active. By the way, of course, this is just measuring blood flow change, not actual neural activity. Activity. There's a step in between there. More neurons firing means more oxygen needed, means more blood cell going, blood going there, and there's a transitional period there. It takes a couple seconds for the blood to get there, so it's not a perfect real-time measure. Nevertheless, um, they do a, a, another game like this that shows us that there's something uh, deeper to our uh, emotions, our moral emotions, than just culture and learning. Um, and this one's called the ultimatum game. This one's kind of fun. Let's say you two are subjects in my class, and you're poor, starving students, so you could really use a few bucks. And uh, I offer you $100. And you can make an offer to your, uh, your, your fellow student here who, whom you don't know. And uh, the last talk, it was they were married, and that really threw it off when I gave them the choice. So, because <laughs> married couples have other things going on. Anyway, so uh, anyway, you don't know each other. You get the 100 bucks. You make him an offer of a, of a split. If he accepts your offer, uh, you both get to keep the money. If he rejects it, I take the money back, and neither of you get anything. It's a one-shot deal. You both know the rules. Uh, what will you offer him? 70 bucks. That's pretty good. That's a, you'll probably get away with that. Uh, anything less than that, though, to him, let's say an 80-20 or 90-10 split, uh, he would probably reject. Most subjects do. Um, and now, uh, this is interesting because according to uh, sort of the theory of homo economicus, uh, that is, humans, economic man, are rational, uh, free in their rational choices, and, and, we, and we make utility maximizing or value maximizing choices. So we're free to make choices. The choices we make are rational and selfish or self-maximizing. Why would this guy turn down a 90-10 offer? I mean, he's a poor starving student. He walks into the lab with no money. He can walk out right now with 10 bucks and go to Starbucks and buy you know, two lattes. <laughs> Uh, why would he turn that down? That's an irrational thing to do. And when you ask them, they'll say, because it's not fair. Well, an economist who studies incentives would, uh, would say he is now willing to pay 10 bucks to punish her uh, for unfairness. How irrational is that? Not very in an evolutionary perspective, because in an evolutionary perspective, in a social primate species, you have to have mechanisms for prosociality, conflict resolution, for us to get along as, a, as individuals within a group. Um, and so that sense of fairness uh, is deeply embedded, and yet again in fMRI studies you can see which parts of the brain are lighting up in that there's iterated versions of the ultimatum game where whatever you give him is tripled in value, then he makes an offer back to you, and whatever you accept is tripled in value, you go back and forth ten times, and it, either one of you can defect at any time and take what you've got. Uh, so then that sets up a little system of anxiety about, is he going to defect in this one? Maybe I better defect. Anyway, and prisoner's dilemma where you can cooperate or defect and get shorter or longer sentences or money and different configurations of this. Anyway, when subjects are fairly cooperative and nice and everybody's making a lot of money and having fun, uh, the sort of dopamine-rich centers of the brain light up. That is, uh, 
dopamine is associated with feel-good emotions. It's sort of a reward kind of drug associated with addictive drugs, for example, sex, sexual erotic pictures, um, and, and now game theory cooperation, apparently. And uh, so this is yet another one of these uh, sort of lines of evidence that this is something deeply embedded uh, in our brains, in our evolutionary history. I mean, in part, I started down this study two books ago with the science of good and evil as a response to the, the, theologians and theists who would say to me as an atheist, well, without good, without God, why would you be good? Without good, why would you be God, I guess. <laughs> without God, why would you be good? And, and uh, you know, to which I uh, sometimes would say something like, well, if there were no God, you know, what would you do or who would you do? <laughs> I mean, uh, the evidence shows that theists and Christians are no more or less moral than anybody else uh, so in terms of behavior, recorded behavior. So, uh, but, but what I want to know is, okay, let's say just take God out of the picture. Um, where would these things come from? All right, so different lines of inquiry lead us to this. Franz Duval's research, for example, uh, Duvall at, at, at Emory and his colleagues like Sarah Bronston have done so these really clever experiments. Well, it's sort of an ultimatum game or game theory models with primates. So they don't have language, so you have to tweak it quite a bit to get them to play, but it's not that hard. So you have, just imagine two chimpanzees sitting in two cages here. Um, there's a, a see-through barrier here so they can see each other. And, uh, and they both have a task of pulling this rope up. And, and down, down below is this little platform um, yoked to the ropes. If they both pull the rope, the platform comes up evenly. And on one side of the platform is a bucket of uh, fruit, freshly cut fruit, mm, nice and juicy, and thing of ice. And no, they, can't, they haven't eaten in a while. They're hungry, motivated. And if they both pull it up, you know, the bucket comes all the way up. And if, they, if only one pulls it up, the platform tilts and the food falls off. Nobody gets anything. So that's a kind of an ultimatum game, right? So the question is, is when it's iterated, when you pull them up, does the one chimp share with the other one. If he shares, this other one will participate again and cooperate. If not, they'll defect and quit playing, throw things, get mad. Um, there's obviously a sense of injustice there. Um, so either we've evolved two different lines of a sense of fairness, or us and chimps and our common ancestors all the way back to seven million years ago ha had that sense of fairness. And you can go back even further because the same experiments can be done with capuchin monkeys in which they do this, they respond the same sort of way. So that's going back 13 to 14 million years of a common ancestor split. Um, and uh, anyway, so that, that's a kind of a line of inquiry there. You can, uh, parenthetically, in terms of economic theory, like the, the basic one everybody learns is supply and demand. And, uh, and you can train little capuchin monkeys to, um, you give them some little pebbles and you train them to trade the pebbles for some fruit. And so let's say a banana slice is one pebble and an apple slice is two pebbles and a slice of peach is three pebbles or whatever. And you establish a baseline of, of, of how much they like each of them. And then, uh, and then in a second scenario, you get them used to trading. You know, you come around with the fruit, they give you, they look in there, they give you some, and it's like a little exchange game. Then in the second uh, scenario, you uh, double the price of one of the fruits and see what happens. Well, the, you know, supply and demand, those curves are just exactly like they are in humans, right? The amount that they're willing to um, uh, buy goes down as the price goes up. And, uh, and so the law of supply and demand appears to have evolved over 15 million years ago as a form of exchange. Now, we're used to thinking of economics and, and trade as, you know, like markets and money. But if you think of, think of an economy as any social system in which organisms are exchanging anything, then you can see from an evolutionary perspective how this makes sense. Chimp A grooms chimp B. If he does, and if he's attacked by chimp C, this chimp will come over and more likely come over and ate him. Now, we know grooming is good for hygiene, right? Pick off the ticks and all that stuff. Yeah, okay. And we know that uh, grooming and, and physical touch uh, makes organisms uh, uh, more attached to one another. We know it increases oxytocin, which is sort of a bonding attachment hormone that we already know about from uh, nursing mothers and infants, but it turns out it's applied to any social animals and social animals that have a lot of oxytocin tend to be more monogamous. Those that don't tend to be more polygamous. Uh, so we know it has a powerful uh, social bonding effect. And, uh, but on a third level, it's something else. It's a, it's, a, it's a social exchange. It's a form of reciprocal altruism that drives it biochemically. And that is, if I help you, you'll help me when I need it down the line. Okay. So that's yet another line of inquiry that supports that. Um, Okay, so what I'm getting at there then is that um, 
is that emotions like the moral emotions, okay, Smith called it a theory of moral sentiments. That's an 18th century, sentiments is an 18th century way of saying emotions. So why would those emotions be there? Let's think of something really simple like hunger. So when you're low in calories, you feel hungry, that's an emotion that motivates you to be more active so you can find calories. And same thing with thirst. So that's a simple emotion. Think of emotions as drivers of behavior in a system that's out of balance. So this is a sort of a equilibrium or a, um, a model of emotions. And uh, so let's say something slightly higher, like attractiveness to members of the opposite sex. What, who do we, what do we find attractive in members of the opposite sex? And why would that feeling be there? Well, we, we know what the ultimate reason for it is, propagation of the species. You have to be attracted to somebody in order to, you know, get your genes into the next generation, or at least it helps. <laughs> there was a Crosby, Stills, and Nash song about that. Uh, you can't be with the one you love. Anyway, so... Um, um, okay, I distracted myself now. <laughs> oh, okay, so, um, and so we have a body of research now from evolutionary psychologists that tell us that women find attractive in men, men that uh, have that sort of broad shoulders and a narrow waist and a, you know, muscular shoulders, and they have a, a symmetrical body, fairly symmetrical body. It's not too asymmetrical. You put, if you put a mirror up there, it wouldn't be radically different. Uh, clear complexion, and, and uh, in, in women, men find attractive, you know, the hourglass-shaped symmetrical face, clear complexion, and that, that, that uh, sort of waist-to-hip ratio of 0 0.67, 0 0.67 waist-to-hip ratio. Now, no one walks into a nightclub and says, Wow, that guy is really pretty symmetrical. Or, okay, she's 0.71. That's pretty close. Okay, I'm, I'm doing the calculation here, and okay, you're the one. Um, which is silly because, of course, uh, but there is a calculator. Evolution did the calculating for us, and we have emotions that simply drive us toward uh, those behaviors. Okay, so just moving up the scale, then what I'm arguing is that the moral emotions. Feelings of guilt and shame about having uh, harmed somebody in a social game theory model where you should have cooperated, or anger at somebody who defected in the possible exchange, um, and joy and pride at having helped somebody. These are all emotions that evolved to help us drive behavior in a, in this case, social uh, environment. So all of economics. Economics is just that. It's just social exchange in a social primate species like us. And if we look at it that way, then it helps us see that evolution has something to say uh, about this. And then one final line of, of, um, of inquiry on this um, comes from my research from my friend Paul Zak at Claremont Graduate University. So I'll just read another little portion about Paul's research here. Uh, there's an old English proverb that says, it's an equal failing to trust everyone and to trust no one. So begins Paul Zak, a professor of economics at Claremont Graduate University, who's taken his profession down to the molecular level in his search for the neurochemistry of trust, which he believes is grounded in oxytocin. He says, we know that trust is a very strong predictor of national prosperity, but I want to know what makes two people trust one another. Zach is the oxytocin man. It says so right on his license plate. <laughs> this is California, you see. We have these, these license plates that signals who we are. It's more of a guy thing, actually. It's a testosterone thing, really. Anyway, that's another, another one of those hormones. Tall and handsome with square shoulders, the physique of someone who works out regularly. Zach's firm grip and warm smile exude, well, trust. Trained in traditional economics in the mid-1990s, his research led him to connect trust to economic growth. A 1996 study on trust in 42 countries, for example, asked people in their native language, generally speaking, would you say that most people can be trusted or that you can't be too careful in dealing with people? The results were as diverse as they were striking. At the low end of the scale, trust scale, only 3% of those surveyed in Brazil and 5% in Peru believe that their fellow citizens are trustworthy, compared to 65% of Norwegians and 60% of Swedes who trust one another. Falling in the middle of the scale, interestingly, were the United States at 36% and the United Kingdom at 44%. The rankings remain essentially unchanged even when they're controlled for income. Trust is high in the countries of Scandinavia and East Asia, but low in the countries of South America, Africa, and, um, East, and uh, especially the former communist bloc. The simple correlation between national rates of investment, gross investment per gross domestic product, and trust is strongly positive, Zach explains, so that when trust is low, investment lags. 
The same positive correlation holds for GDP growth and trust. So Paul then want to know what conditions in a society, uh, let's say how would you get a third world nation to become a first world industrial modern economy? You need certain social institutions that trigger all those possible behavioral economic game theory type exchanges to develop trust. The list of positive social interactions identified in Zach's research will surprise no one living in a liberal democracy in a relatively free market. Protection of civil liberties, freedom of the press, freedom of association, freedom of travel, that is good roads and reliable infrastructure. The bridges don't just fall down. <laughs> Michigan or wherever that was. Freedom of communication, working phone systems. You pick up the phone and you actually get a dial tone. I mean, that's big. In some countries, you, you don't get that. Ecuador, I go to Ecuador a lot because I go to the Galapagos, and um, their phones don't work. And so they're government phones. What do you expect? So everybody just uses cell phones. They just basically skipped the landline stage that we went through. Um, otherwise, you can't have exchange and there's no trust. Mass education, a reliable banking system, a sound currency, and especially the freedom to trade. He even found a connection between a clean environment and trust, whereby people in countries with polluted environments show higher levels of estrogen antagonists, which lowers their level of oxytocin and thus their feelings of trust. Okay, so then Paul start put this sort of to the experimental test through a couple of different interesting uh, experiments. So you do this ultimatum game thing, uh, uh, and these various trust games, and uh, and you draw. He draws their blood. So this is a real commitment. I mean, you really got to pay these subjects because you know you're taking their blood, and you have to train the graduate students, and not anybody can do this. Uh, and he finds that when uh, when there's a lot of trust, a lot of generosity, prosociality between strangers in these games, that there's a big spike in oxytocin. Now, oxytocin's half-life is short, a few minutes, so you got to do it right there pretty quick. Then he wanted to know which way the causal arrow flows, this oxytocin and causer effect. So he did this one where you know, one group of subjects gets a hit of a nose spray that has oxytocin in it. It's a technology developed for pregnant women to induce labor. You know, just give them a little hit of oxytocin, boom! Cooperation goes up, generosity goes up, they're feeling really good, uh, and those that didn't, uh, you know, were back at the normal level. Except for about two to three percent of subjects who showed no response at all to oxytocin. Uh, Paul calls these the bastards. <laughs> I call them Zach's bastards. It, it appears to correlate uh, with the two to three percent of sociopaths in, in, in society. Now, this is a little speculative, but it could be that there are just some people who are six standard deviations out. I mean, they are just unresponsive to the normal cues of society that uh, you, we pick up to, uh, to develop trust. They just don't respond. And uh, now, uh, now, Paul takes this even a step further, and this is really speculative, but it's, per it's perhaps because of the bastards that our moral, that we sort of have this fine-tuned moral sensitivity. You have to really be on your toes, not just because there are some people who cheat a little bit, but especially because of the bastards who will take advantage of you. Anyway, that's, who knows, that's, but that's kind of speculative. So I like that research. That's yet another one of the multiple lines of evidence that show the evolutionary origins of our <clears throat> economic sensitivity. So I'm going to wrap up here with um, just a, a two final passages, and then we'll take questions. So the psychology behind diffusing intergroup aggression involves turning potentially dangerous total strangers into prospectively helpful honorary friends. This process is enabled through the creation of social institutions that encourage, enable, and enforce positive social interactions that lead to trust. One of the most powerful of these forms of interaction is trade, the effects of which I want to elevate into a principle based on an observation by the 19th century French economist Frederick Bastiat where goods do not cross frontiers, armies will. Bastiat's principle not only helps us understand how hunter-gatherers made the transition to consumer traders, it also illuminates one of the primary causes of conflict. And its corollary elucidates one of the principal steps toward conflict reduction. If Bastiat's principle holds that where goods do not cross frontiers, armies will, then its corollary dictates that where goods do cross frontiers, armies will not. Now, this is a principle, not a law, since there are exceptions, both historically and today. So it's a first approximation of a principle. Trade will not prevent war, but it attenuates its likelihood. Thinking in terms of probabilities instead of absolutes, trade between groups increases the probability that peaceful and stable relations will continue and decreases the probability that instabilities and conflicts will erupt. So returning to where we began the book with the Yanomamo hunter-gatherers and how they evolved into Manhattan consumer traders, 
When missionaries first began work with the Yanomamo, they discovered that if they provided the native peoples with tools for the procurement and production of food and other resources, the amount of Yanomamo intervillage fighting was greatly reduced. The great Yanomamo ethnographer Napoleon Shagnon, who originally gave the Yanomamo their fierce people moniker, his um, monogram was called Yanomamo, the fierce people. <laughs> he since took that off because people took that too far. But, um, but he discovered that the Yanomamo are sophisticated traders as well as ferocious warriors because trade creates political alliances. Following the dictum, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Yanomamo intervillage trade and reciprocal food exchanges serve as a powerful social glue in the creation of political alliances. Village A can't go to village B and announce that they're worried about being conquered by the more powerful village C, since that would reveal their own weakness. Instead, village A forms an alliance with village B through trade and reciprocal feasting. Think of the chimps grooming each other. And as a result, they not only gain military protection, but also encourage intervillage peace. As a byproduct of this politically motivated economic exchange, even though each Yanomamo band could produce all the SKUs it needs for survival, they often set up a division of labor and a system of trade. The unintended consequence is an increase in both wealth and SKUs. The, now, the Yanomamo trade not because they're innate altruists or nascent capitalists, but because they want to form political alliances. Quote from Shagnon, without the frequent contact with neighbors, alliances would be much slower in formation and would be even more unstable once formed. A prerequisite to stable alliances is repetitive feasting and visiting, and the trading mechanism serves to bring about these visits. In other words, where goods cross Yanomamo frontiers, Yanomamo armies do not. And then finally, I take this one step further uh, into what I call the Starbucks corollary to Bastiat's principle. Where Starbucks cross frontiers, armies will not. This is my epilogue, by the way. You're allowed to do this kind of wild speculation. It's okay. That is the free trade of products between peoples and open access to services across geographic borders obviates the necessity of political borders and thereby decreases the probabilities that armies will cross them. To the Starbucks corollary, I add the Google theory of peace, <laughs> where information and knowledge cross frontiers, armies will not. That is, the free trade of information between peoples and open access to knowledge across geographic borders obviates the necessity of political borders and thereby decreases the probabilities that armies will cross them. A stern example of this can be seen in Europe since the Treaty of Rome and the formation of the European Union, which integrated disparate and historically divided European nations under one economic umbrella, where once invasions and wars were commonplace throughout a thousand years of European history, they are now unthinkable. Try it. Imagine Germany invading France and waging war on her. Or picture France motoring its armies through the channel and marching them into London to declare the country French. What once made for dramatic literature now sounds like pulp fiction. The wickification of the economy, wickonomics as it's becoming known, adds to the Google theory of peace the entire world economy as practiced by and participated in by billions of people. And Wikipedia is the right analog for this emerging economic phenomenon. It is the collaboratively created encyclopedia that runs on wiki software that allows real-time and constant editing of documents by anyone, anywhere, anytime. It is an open source, peer-produced, mass-collaborated, bottom-up, self-organized, emergent property of millions of people choosing to build the modern equivalent of the Alexandrian library whose purpose it is, was to make the sum of the world's knowledge available to everyone in one location. Granted, the ancient Alexandrian Greeks had far less knowledge to store than we do today by orders of magnitude, but we have the World Wide Web. In the long run, no dictator, demagogue, priest, president, or any other pretender to power will be able to control the Googlefication, Wikification, Ebayification, Mequestification, YouTubeification, MySpaceification of information, knowledge, geography, personal relationships, markets, and the economy. Chinese bureaucrats can attempt to put all the firewalls and controls they want on a billion potential Chinese web surfers, but they will never be able to prevent knowledge, products, and people from finding their way to those who seek them. Freedom finds a way. Thank you. Okay, questions? They'll probably flip it on as you're talking there.
Okay, thank you, Dr. Shermer. We're going to take about uh, 10 minutes of questions, and then um, Dr. Shermer will be signing books right down in the front right here. So thank you. First of all, Dr. Shermer, thank you very much for a very enjoyable talk. Hey, you're I welcome. I especially like the bit about um, social Darwinists not liking Darwin. And uh, I hope you're right about information, because I definitely like MP3s. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> MP3 fan. So um, regarding your idea that as information crosses these areas, it's going to necessarily lead to a certain, I mean feedback, a certain structure, a certain um, game question where large-scale wars become counterproductive for everybody. But I wonder if I could introduce something else from evolutionary social psychology into this, which is that when you have all this information, and so much of this information, as you talk about, has to do with our evolutionary adaptation towards gossip, there's a certain limit that people have mentioned on the mind as to how many actual complex relationships you can keep in mind at any given time, and it's about a couple of hundred. 150, I've heard something a little larger. Anyway, it was commented a while ago that, I'll keep this brief, um, too much information can be a bad thing, thing. And when it comes to social relationships, it has been suggested that the more people you put in contact with, the more that you seek filtration mechanisms by which you decide who fits into your MySpace top 150. <laughs> yeah. And as much as interdependence of economic zones may lead to the inability of those people to wage war on each other without large-scale cost, that is definitely not true of class, at mm -hmm. least from my perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the whole Would thing is, that, is an, I think the whole thing is an anti-elitist system that we're moving toward. Mm. But I guess what I'm finally getting at is, does this organization, just based on the rules of evolutionary social psychology, psychology, necessarily mean that you lead to, I can't think of a better word for it, tribalization? on that micro scale. I think I got regard. it. Yeah, yeah, this is a really good and deep question. Um, the, the answer is we still need to be vigilant about the natural inclination to be tribal. Um, as, as Jefferson said, uh, you know, eternal vigilance is the watchword of freedom. There will always be power hungry individuals that want to have their tribe over other tribes. We're still like that. I mean, another chapter in my book, I, uh, I, I say, we, I claim we, have, we still haven't fulfilled Smith's revolution, which was that mercantilism does not lead to the greatest wealth in nations. Mercantilism is basically tribalism. It's, it's that our producers are more important than those foreign producers, and we're going to protect them at all costs, even if it costs all citizens in the nation more money. His example was, would you rather buy wine from Scotland or France. Well, French wine is much better than Scottish wine because it's cold and rainy up there all the time and it's warm and sunny in southern France. Uh, but we can't have that because our Scottish producers will be hurt if we import and allow our citizens to buy all that wonderful French wine. So we'll double the cost of French wine to protect our, uh, our producers. So that's a producer-oriented economic system. And Smith said, no, we should have a consumer-oriented economic system. Consumers should be the bosses. The consumer bosses de decide. All the way up, think of Reagan, bailed out the Harley-Davidson motorcycle company. He wanted to save a couple hundred workers in Ohio or wherever Harley-Davidson was, because it's an all-American, male, Reagan-ish kind of company. And uh, you know we can't have them being bettered by those much better Japanese Yamaha and Honda motorcycles. I remember I had a Honda motorcycle when that happened. And, and they went up in price 100% for about uh, five years just to punish us for, you know, for not helping, well, just to save the Harley-Davidson. So that's still tribalism, and we still practice it today. Yep, next. Hi. So knowing all this information about people's behavior and oxytocin, where do you see um, the research going next? Why do we use this information, and what, what's Next in this kind Nose of Nose spray with oxytocin for everybody in the White House. <laughs> well, as my friend Steve Pinker is fond of saying, the number one predictor of violence is maleness. I hate to say it since, you know, I'm one of them. Uh, but, uh, well, where does it go? Well, I guess in a way um, it, it helps to know who we actually are. That is the, is 
Will Durant would say, you know, the constitution of man has to direct the constitutions of men uh, in, in that pre-PC age. And so, but you have to know what our constitution is. So I think it's clear from evolutionary theory now that we're not a blank slate. You know, there's a there's a, a deep blend between biology and culture, and obviously you can see that, and so we have to take that into account. What I'm arguing is that I'm arguing for more free trade, more, less restrictions on the economy, especially international trade. I guess I'd be in favor of globalization. Um, as long as corporations are not getting handouts from governments. See, uh, here Ralph Nader is, I wouldn't normally agree with him, but his uh, concept of corporate welfare is right. Smith would have agreed with that. Smith was very critical of businessmen. He said, um, well, however he said in his Scottish way, you know, neither does a di dinner of businessmen go on before they are uh, plotting against the public to fix prices and so on. But they can only do that with the aid of the government enforcing unions and, and things like their um, guilds and things like that that they can control. So just let the market decide. I'm from Southern California and I can't believe immigration has become this new issue. It, it, we've had, it, nothing's changed. It's been like that since I was born. There's tons of Mexicans down at uh, all the Home Depots and so on and when you want something done, you go down there and pick them up, take them and pay them and they do great work and they send the money back to their families. What's wrong with that? and uh, let the market decide. W when all those jobs have been filled, they won't come here. They come here because there's plenty of work to do. Believe me, lots of work, and they do great work. So, you know, what's this business about all the borders? That's just tribalism. We gotta protect our tribe and protect our workers from those evil Mexican workers or whatever. It's silly, so. Thank you. Uh, hi, um, I wanted to talk about uh, generosity or reciprocity in the, in the context of kind of one-to-one uh, -one interaction, specifically about the ultimatum game and even the dictator game. and. I want to really distill the, the concept and, and ask, even if you don't know the size of the pot, that is, you can divide 100 bucks, but the other person doesn't know how much you have, so you can really give him a buck and he'll think you're generous. Um, and even more than that, if, if the pot is, you, if the experimenter says um, you give the pot to him, so that is, you have to take from him, would people still be, uh, you know, um, would still consider the reciprocity principle, that is they won't take everything from the other person just because of, like you said, the evolutionary kind of rules of interaction? Oh. Well, you can change the amount of generosity or selfishness by altering the rules of the game, of course, so the dictator game where you just give somebody something. or And cross-culturally, although uh, within most Western cultures, though, though say less than a 70-30 split is rejected, uh, you, you, you find something like that in non-Western cultures, but there's much more variation depending on how much exposure they've had to market economies and so on. So you can definitely tweak it. I guess um, probably the, the best metaphor I like is uh, Mark Hauser's metaphor of a moral grammar. So think of we all are born with the capacity to learn a language, and depending on where you're raised, that's the language you, you learn. Well, we're all born with the capacity to be moral, and then systems around the world tweak it this way or that way. In one system, it may be that tipping is not a big thing, and others it is. You know, so you, you can you can tweak it. But the tip process involves something deeper, an emotion about feeling guilty about not giving somebody something, and so maybe your culture tells you how much you're supposed to give or not give. But what I'm after there is why should you feel like giving something in the first place, or feel guilty about not giving it? Why would the feeling be there? And it's there because we're social primates, and we have to change our behavior in interactions with others. So, so it's not the other person that's standing in front of you that makes you give them or not take from them. It's really something also within that, it, Also inside, yeah, that's right. Yep. Thank you. See, one of the myths I debunk about evolution in this book also is that uh, uh, social Darwinism really got a bad name because those who are promoting it, well, they, they believe the wrong theory of evolution. They believe that nature was red in tooth and claw and it's just a bunch of animals being beastly and destructive and nasty and selfish and greedy and this is what I call the Gordon Gecko theory of economics. I mean it's like Enron. That All corporations are like Enron. There's a lot of people that think that and if, if that were true market capitalism would have imploded centuries ago. It can't be true. There's no way you could do business like that. Uh, Jeffrey Skelling, the CEO of Enron, he said his favorite book at Harvard Business School was Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene. He had this idea that, you know, nature red and tooth and claw, Herbert Spencer's quote, the survival of the fittest, which somehow got picked, it was a great meme, because it's a catchy little phrase, but it's the wrong meme. Uh, it, it, because it could be that being really generous and cooperative and nice makes you more fit. So it's not that the genes are selfish, of course. It's not even that the genes are making the organism selfish. Could be that genes can propagate best by making you selfless. Let's go to this one and then one more. Thank you. 
we'll make him the last one. Uh, okay, so my question is, uh, sometimes a conscious understanding of something, like the processes that make us trust each other, um, that conscious understanding can change the nature of those processes, either, the, either by like overriding the emotions that would give rise to that, or allowing people to fake it or something like that. So given that that can, like, when, you, when someone does research that comes up with, you know, how people are naturally inclined to act, once we consciously understand that, it can kind of render that research sort of meaningless or at least change the nature of it. So my question is, is there a sort of a stable limit trajectory or something like that, that in the course of this understanding, like, we won't be just stuck digging in this trench forever? Yes. As Catherine Hepburn said to Humphrey Bogart in The African Queen, nature, Mr. Alnut, is what we were put in this world to rise above. <laughs> so yes, of course, our, our conscious awareness of how we are, just like the alcoholic should not go to a bar, or Christopher Hitchens' house, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and the addict should stay away from drugs, or you know, whatever. I mean, obviously, knowing how you are, knowing the constitution of, of human nature, it helps us tweak the system. I mean, so really, for 10,000 years, we've been trying to figure out what's the right social system. How much government intervention do we need from the top down? The analogies are not perfect between the economy and evolution. We do, the free market needs some structure within which to be free and fair. You need a set of laws, you need a, a rule of law in a country with a justice system that's fair to everybody, and you need all these things, and somebody has to do that, and the free market hasn't figured out a way to do that. So for now, we pay taxes, and the government does that. Uh, and so that's been you know, a 10,000-year sort of struggle to find out, say, between liberals and conservatives, whatever they would have been called thousands of years ago, of that balance between individual freedom and sort of collective rule. Last question. Just saying thank you. Um, thank you again, Dr. Schirmer. Oh, we get, okay, right. Sorry. I yeah. Can we get another hand for, uh, for Dr. Okay, Schirmer? Thank and you. Fantastic talk. Thank you. Thank you.